Well, good morning again, everyone, and here we are in uh, chapter 5 now of Daniel, our, our series that we have entitled Lions, and uh, the reason we've done that is because metaphorically in Scripture, there, there seems to show two lions. One's a prowling lion seeking someone he may devour. We know that's a metaphor for the devil. The enemy, um, he roars, and his roar is fear. It's a toothless lion, though. If we walk in, in the strength of God, we know that we do not need to fear it. But there's also the roar of faith, and that comes from the Lion of Judah, our Heavenly Father, who roars for His children and those who seek refuge in Him. Lions. We want to be walking like lions amid fear. And um, as we continue our series here um, in your home, um, we're excited to see what God's going to do in this chapter today, I'll tell you, it's a pretty exciting story. It's, it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. It's right up there with all these beginning chapters of Daniel. And I pray it encourages you. Hey, Daniel 1, Daniel chapter 1, we met a young Daniel who showed conviction amid conformity. Everybody was doing what the king said. He said, I will not eat the king's food. I will remain loyal to my God. In, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel had been promoted, now he was one of the, the men that counseled the king, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, a terrifying dream of this huge image um, with a gold head and, and, and different colors as it, as it went down, and iron, and, and all these things, and, and Daniel was the only one who could interpret the dream, and he showed prudence amid all of Nebuchadnezzar's panic. And again, Daniel was promoted because of that interpretation. In Daniel chapter 3, we met his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They showed trust amid testing, for everyone was told to bow down before this massive golden image, most likely inspired by the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had constructed in Babylon. And they would not do it. They would not worship another god. They would do everything the king asked, but they would not worship and deny their God, and they were promoted. We, we pick up this idea that whenever we, we take a stand for our Lord and Savior, whenever we demonstrate humility but walk with confidence into our fears, we see exaltation. It's this whole suffering, testing, and then exaltation. It's the gospel, and, and we see that in Jesus' life, and we're seeing it in Daniel. But chapter 4 takes a turn, and we met Nebuchadnezzar, um, not for the first time, but we met him in a moment of extreme pride on the porch in Babylon, saying, look what I have done with my hands. And it was at that very moment that he was ruined. The, the kingdom was taken from him. He was sent into the desert by God. He was humbled. And it wasn't until his reason returned amid the ruin that his kingdom was restored. And what was the reason that returned to him? Humility. Well, today, today it's now between chapter 4 and chapter 5, some 36 years have passed. And Babylon is thriving under the, the kingly reign of Belshazzar. Now, this Belshazzar, um, he's got a, an incredible kingdom. And Babylon now is, is some 55 miles wide in its perimeter. It, it was like no other city in the world. It had these hanging gardens. It was stunning. He had taken what Nebuchadnezzar had built up and took it to a whole nother level. There were over 100 gates of bronze with this huge deep moat around the city. It was unbelievable and stunning. The Euphrates River ran through it and divided it on either side. And, and oh my goodness, it, it was just gorgeous. Babylon. Belshazzar's Babylon. But you know what? Just like Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar got full of himself. And today, chapter 5, we're calling this one reckless amid risk. We're going to see how Belshazzar's recklessness really led to his demise. And I pray we learn from it, 
We grow from it. And we don't walk with recklessness amid risk. And in doing so, we'll walk as lions. Would you pray with me as we begin reckless amid ruin? Heavenly Father, use this text today to really help us gain insight, much like chapter 4, in how not to live, how not to behave. And Lord, if there's any recklessness in us, may we surrender it to you, especially with all the risk we are potentially living in in the time that I'm praying this. Lord, use this passage today to encourage us and inspire us, and may we leave this time in the Word of God being different because we opened it today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, have you ever been reckless? I mean, is that something that you've ever been? I, I got, I got a, a dash of a car up here um, because uh, I can think of a particular time I was extremely reckless. It was Christmas, I believe, 2002. Um, I had a young family. Um, I was uh, 25 around that time, and uh, I had a, a two-year-old and a three-month-old in the back, and I made a decision that was completely reckless. You see, it was Christmas, and when you're a young couple, you try to get around to all the, the grandparents so they can see the grandkids, and, and my wife wanted to go home, which was in Belfont, Pennsylvania, and uh, we live... If you're watching and you're not local with us, we live just north of Philadelphia here in Percocet, Pennsylvania. And uh, in order to get to Belfont, you have to go up what's called the, uh, the Northeast Extension and jump on to Route 80, which runs across the top of the state. And so, to put it uh, mildly, weather in our area is different than weather up there. And all Christmas Day, we were talking about going to her parents but there was kind of an impending storm coming in. And we were just deciding, should we go? Shouldn't we go? It didn't look that bad outside my window. We had people here kind of counseling us. I don't think you should go. Wisdom says stay. But I'm 25. I'm 26 at the time. And I'm, come on, I got an SUV. I got a four-wheel drive. I mean, come on. What could stop us? So I got in my blue SUV. And we got the kids in the back, we bundled them up, they got some of their presents with them, and I get in and we're headed up the Northeast Extension and there's flurries in the air. And we went through what's, there's a tunnel, and we came out the other end of the tunnel, and that's about 45 minutes north of here, and the weather was totally different. The snow was coming down, really large flakes. And I'm driving, and what was just kind of cruising along, now I'm getting nervous. And, and I picked this vehicle once, so kids, I know you're watching. I got a lot of pictures of kids watching. Um, if you can see the eyes on this truck, that's what my eyes started to look like. And, and as we continued to drive, it got worse and worse and worse. And I'm starting to think, what have we done? My wife's starting to question my decision making, which was probably a good thing to be doing. And... and and we continued up and we got onto Route 80 and I began to realize we're like some of the only people on the road now. Sun has gone down, it's dark, and it's snowing, and it's getting heavier and heavier, and I've got my vehicle in four-wheel drive now. And we're going maybe 40 miles an hour tops, 35, you, there's troughs, okay? And I'm slowing down, and I'm down to about 30 miles an hour now. Snow is just coming down like crazy and I'm feeling oh my word what have I done I'm an idiot I started praying my wife's praying my two-year-old boy he's just playing with his trucks he doesn't even know what dad has done and my two-month-old little girl is sleeping our sweet baby she doesn't even know what her dad's gotten her into and I'm headed down and we haven't called my wife's my wife's parents because we didn't want them to know what we were doing because they would say don't come and we wanted to be there for Christmas and surprise them we're headed down the road and the snow continued my wife got a phone call from her mom and she said I'm so glad you guys didn't come because they just shut down Interstate 80. No one's allowed on it. My wife says, 
That's why no one's on the road. Because we're on a shut down highway. My wife got the courage to tell her, um, we're still outside of Danville. We're getting closer. You came? We, we came. Oh my word. And then everybody in our family was now praying for this idiot who took his family into the middle of a snowstorm on Christmas. My eyes were huge, but they got even bigger. Because just minutes down the road, I look up and see in front of us kind of the end of our trough that we're kind of going through. And there's an embankment. And, and I felt like it was this high, okay, but I was in an SUV. So I bet the embankment was around three feet, maybe, maybe three feet high. But I have no idea for it's plowed up and it's stopped. I have no idea what's on the other side of that embankment. I'm driving, and i got to make decisions. It's completely dark out. There's no hotels in any kind of area up there. And I literally, I've got it in four-wheel drive, and I gun it into this snow bank. Right in. And now we're going in snow on 80 with zero plowed road at about 25 miles an hour. We're four hours into this trip. I'm starting to stare at the gas gauge. And I have realized, I have put my family in unnecessary danger because I was reckless. Yeah, you can believe what the Lord did for me that night. I'm going to share that before this sermon ends. But I want us to be thinking, where am I most likely to be reckless? Reckless. It, it, here's the definition. An attitude or behavior that does not think about the consequences or ramifications of their actions. But it also means an attitude or behavior that does not care about the consequences or ramifications of their actions. Have you said at all during this crisis, look, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm hearing, I'm hearing things like, people are soft. You know, as a person with asthma, growing up, and as a possible at risk, knowing people in our church family, that if they were to get the coronavirus, that they would be more at risk than others? Boy, I find that to be a really harsh opinion. I, I've heard things like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened in my life. I mean, I, I, I'm so bored. I'm so, this is horrible. Okay, okay, time out, time out. Um, I believe you can still get in line in Chick-fil-A and maybe stop and get a coffee. Okay, Walmart's open, Giant's open. Um, this isn't the worst thing that's ever happened to your life. You're probably still on internet enjoying the comforts of your home. So, so sometimes I think that opinion's a little... There, there's people in, in worse positions than us even still. And, and then I hear things like, this is a totally immediate event. Okay, but our entire country shut down and our president is declaring a national state of emergency? Maybe we should respect that a little bit. I, I hear things like, um, I ain't listening to no government. Aren't they trying to save lives right now? Isn't that the motivation behind this? I mean, I'm even seeing pastors taking stands for things that have nothing to do with persecution. We're tempted right now to possibly be reckless, and I want us to learn today. And I want us to process that today. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Here it is. In what arena of life am I most tempted to be reckless amid risk? In what arena of life am I most tempted to be reckless amid risk? Relationships? Finances? Your health? Your diet, 
your words, your opinions. Daniel chapter 5 shows us a king who was reckless amid risk, and I want us to all learn from it. So, if you got your scripture in front of you, your phone or whatever, Daniel chapter 5, we're going to look at Belshazzar, and we're going to learn how to avoid being reckless when there's clear risk. What do I mean? As we open the book, we do understand some context from um, sources around this text. And one of the contexts of what we're going through when we walk into Babylon is this. Outside Babylon, during the time of this event, there seems to be a gathering of Medes and Persian armies around Babylon seeking to ransack it and take the kingdom. And so there is a looming threat building right outside the city. Right outside this incredible city of Babylon. With its gigantic moats and huge walls. It, it was indestructible. Okay? It was unsinkable. Okay? And this army is surrounding it. What will Belshazzar do? What, what, how will he respond to this? Okay? L look what he's doing with a looming threat around the city. You ready? Here, here, here we go. Here we check. Verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. What? Aren't you preparing for a possible attack? <laughs> Aren't you at least taking some protective measures? Please. This is Babylon. He's having a feast. He's inviting thousands of people to this feast. He continues. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, ooh, man, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them? There seems to be a warehouse where Nebuchadnezzar, who had stolen from God's temple in Jerusalem, when the Jews went into exile, and he's kept Yahweh's vessels from that temple in a warehouse Nebuchadnezzar has, Belshazzar knows about this, and he says, after he drank the wine, you know what? Go get Yahweh's vessels from his temple. Let's use those. Oh boy. We are starting to get a little glimpse into the arrogance, sacrilege, and monster Belshazzar is. What a humiliation to Yahweh to do this. Is this intentional? Is he just dumb and doesn't realize what he's doing? Or is he that powerful in his mind that he thinks he can just mock the Jewish God? Yahweh. Then they brought it. Look, look. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been, been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, note multiple wives, and his concubines. Those are, I mean, the Bible's not G-rated. These are just the women he likes to sleep with. And they drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone with Yahweh's vessels. As the Medes and Persians are surrounding the city of Babylon, he's got a drunken orgy going on with God's utensils. Immediately, Scripture says, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Daniel's very specific. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. He's having this massive party and a hand shows up, not a body, a hand shows up and starts writing on the wall. What? Writing 
what? Well, let's continue. Let's first see the king's reaction. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. He basically goes, his knees are shaking. He's looking at this. I can't even tell you how terrified he is, and wouldn't you be? Is it possible he knew? Is it possible he heard legends of this Yahweh? And he knows he ticked them off? He's terrified. He, he's alarmed. His color changed. I, I'm going he went white, right? The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation will be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He's going to advance you all the way to the top of the kingdom. Put purple on your gold chain. you got to tell me this interpretation. Note again, Daniel's nowhere to be found we find out he's basically retired or maybe even laid off. Uh, Belshazzar wasn't interested in his duties. Then the king's wise men came in, but they could not read it or make known to the king the interpretation. Then the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed. I wonder if he went from white to red. And his lords were perplexed. What? Does it say? What did this hand write? I mean, here's this king having this party, this pagan party with the Medes and Persians outside the city walls. And a hand shows up and writes on a plaster wall. And no one can interpret it. He is literally freaking out. What's going on? And someone enters the room. Look at this. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall. Isn't, why isn't the queen partying with Belshazzar? Many believe this is possibly the queen mother, maybe even Nebuchadnezzar's wife. But it seems to be someone who was not invited to this drunken feast for they've just entered the room. Many believe this could be more of a queen mother because of the way she speaks to Belshazzar and because of the experience she brings to the table. Listen to what she says to him amidst all this terror. The queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom who is in who is the spirit of who in him is the spirit of the holy gods there's a man in your kingdom she goes on in the days of your father light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him and the king nebuchadnezzar your father your father the king made him chief of the magicians enchanters chaldeans and astrologers she goes into the legend of daniel as if he needed to hear it how naive is this guy to not even know the past? She continues. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. Whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Belteshazzar, call him. He can interpret this dream. Daniel's probably now in his 80s. He, he's not part of this kingdom. He probably hasn't walked in Nebuchadnezzar's palace or throne room in years. And it's like they're calling him out of retirement. And the queen says, you got to talk to this guy. He could do it. You know, it's interesting. Just on an archaeological note, the archaeologists have found the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar and have dug it up. Um, they found the throne room 
And in the throne room, um, it's, it, they found it to be basically, as they uncovered it, about 56 feet wide and about 173 feet long, kind of like a size of a basketball court, maybe a little bit larger. And um, opposite the entrance, when you go in the throne room, opposite the entrance, there seems to be a little niche, and they found plaster on this niche. And this niche looks like it would be behind a, a throne, most likely Nebuchadnezzar's throne, Belshazzar's throne. And that would have been the plaster Daniel was talking about so specifically that was written on. What does it say, though? I mean, get Daniel in here. I want to know what it said. What did the finger write to Belshazzar? So, so they did. They, they call in Daniel, and he's brought before the king. So the king gets Daniel in front of him, and look what he says. You are that Daniel, <laughs> one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. The idea is here, I've heard, let me see for myself. Now, uh, the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me the interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Wow, wow, Belshazzar is desperate because for him to give this opportunity to a Jewish exile, which, which he was in the business of mocking the Jews and their Yahweh, to offer this, he's desperate. Daniel's older now. And the respect he showed Nebuchadnezzar and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the patience he had with Nebuchadnezzar, you can see he don't have a ton of respect for Belshazzar because look how he talks to him now, this young, punky king. Daniel answers the king and says this, let your gifts be for yourselves and give your rewards to another. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want your gifts. I don't, I don't want this stuff. Daniel can see what kind of party was going on here, and he can see what has been used to party with. I bet when he walked in that room, his heart sank when he saw Yahweh's utensils from his temple amidst this drunken orgy feast of the pagans. But Daniel continues, he says, nevertheless, I'll read the, the writing, the king, and I'll make known to you the interpretation. He says, oh king, and I love this, I love this. It's like Daniel, like, I, I, I bet Daniel said this really loud because he wanted everybody in the throne room to hear this. He says, oh king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. But he says this, whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. He had complete, complete reign. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. Daniel's getting somewhere. He continues this lesson in history. He says, he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with that of wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. God is sovereign. God is in control. You human leaders, you are put there by God, and you can be removed from God, by God. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though, here's the bomb, though you knew all this. What? Belshazzar, you knew about your father Nebuchadnezzar. You knew that pride humbled him and crushed him. And it wasn't until he turned in humility that the kingdom was given back. You knew all this? This wasn't naivety. This wasn't just 
just, um, I, I didn't know any better. No, this was arrogant, sacrilegious, pathetic behavior. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. They're fake gods, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then, from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Here's, here's, what, here's what was on it. Mini, mini, tekel, and parson. Oh, good, good. What does that mean? I mean, what, what, what's mini, mini, tekel, parson? I mean, it sounds like a nursery rhyme. What, what does it mean? It's Aramaic, and Daniel begins to interpret it. First, meaning, meaning. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Meaning carries the idea of you've been numbered. Meaning, meaning, repetition in Hebrew is always meant to, to carry the idea of stressing the point. You're numbered, your days have been numbered. God has numbered your days as king and has brought it to an end. It's over, Belshazzar. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting. God has valued you, he's weighed you, and he has found you deficient. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed and you don't measure up. Parson or Paris, broken in two. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. There's vows included in Aramaic or removed at times, and so you have these two different words, but the idea here is broken in two. Your kingdom is divided. It's going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. Who are where right now? Right outside Babylon. Then Belshazzar gave the command. And Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him. That he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Isn't it amazing how God uses the recklessness of these kings' great decrees of how they're going to promote somebody? And leverages them for his kid, Daniel. And every time Daniel steps up in faith, listening to the roar of the line of Judah, and walks into the fear of approaching a king, God exalts him. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. History says Cyrus attacked October 13th, 539 B.C. Babylon, taken down by the Medes and Persians. Reckless. Reckless. Belshazzar, reckless. Are you reckless? Well, I mean... I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. How, how, would I, how would I know if I'm reckless? Well, let me tell you something about reckless people. Scripture says in Ezra 8.23, have you, have you ever read this? The hand of our God is good on all those who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all those who forsake him. A hand wrote on that wall, a hand, God's hand, God's hand, the hand of our God is good on all those who seek him, but 
with power of his wrath is against those who forsake them. I, I, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be reckless, God. God, evaluate me. I don't want to be reckless. But you say, well, what does that look like? I mean, young person right there, you might be sitting there in your couch, you know, half tuned into me right now, but you're kind of like a Belshazzar sometimes. You're kind of cocky sometimes. You know, college student, you're kind of like, yeah, I kind of maybe have been blowing off the risk around me, you know. Uh, whatever it is, how, how would I know if I'm reckless? Here, here's six Here's six characteristics. Uh, we're going to take them from verses in Scripture that kind of show what recklessness is. Here, here's one. Um, overconfidence. Recklessness is overconfident. Thinks it can do anything. I can't handle anything. The wise person fears and turns away from evil, but the fool is reckless and is overconfident. Hey, man, I, I can handle surfing the Internet at night by myself. I mean, I, I can handle this boyfriend. I know he's a little nuts, and, and sometimes he takes advantage of me. Overconfident. Second, second, inattentive, tuned out, aloof. The plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit, but anyone who is reckless certainly becomes poor. I didn't check in on this. I didn't know this. I, I wasn't diligent. I was lazy. I was inattentive. I didn't realize that. Recklessness is purposely or, or almost intentionally aloof. Third, wasteful. Look at the prodigal. And not many days after that, the younger son gathered up all that he had and journeyed into a distant country and there was wasted his fortune in reckless, reckless and loose living. Reckless living is, is wasteful. Take money, you throw it away. You, you don't even know where your money's going. You, it's just wasteful. That's recklessness. Uh, uh, here, here's another. Careless. Careless. For, for the Lord brought Judah low because Ahaz, look at King Ahaz of Israel, he had dealt with reckless cruelty against Judah and had been faithless against the Lord. It just care less. And, and careless comes from the word care less, right? So um, if you ever say, I could care less, that's recklessness. We're told to care about others, child, children of God. We're told to not only think about ourselves, but think about others. Putting others is more important than ourselves. Recklessness is careless. Here, here's an, one, there are two more. One more. Drunk. Ephesians 5.18. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. What was Belshazzar at this time? Drunk. I have lost friends because of drunkenness with a steering wheel in its hand. Last one. Harsh. Harsh. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Some of our opinions are so reckless and they're harsh. If there's anything I've really tried to do as a leader during this time, and man, I'm probably failing more than I'm succeeding. But one of the things I wanted to do is not be reckless with my opinion. To not be reckless about this virus or reckless about the way that I deal with it. And that's difficult. But I think we're called, children of God, to be wise and not reckless. So here's our question. In what arena of life am I most tempted to be reckless amid risk? I got five questions for you to ask yourself. Who are you reckless with? Who are you most tempted to be reckless with? Is there a certain friend? Is there an employee? Coworker? Who are you most tempted to be reckless with? Evaluate that. Here's a second one. What are you reckless with? I mean, what are you most tempted to be reckless with? Is it your money? Is it um, your house? Is it your car? Is it possession? What are you most tempted to be reckless with? Here, here's a third one. Where are you reckless at? I mean, where are you most tempted to be reckless at? Bedroom? Kitchen? 
the road, internet. When? When are you reckless usually? When you're alone? In groups? Man, I'm fine by myself, but when you get in groups? When you're upset? When you're discouraged? When you're feeling depressed? When are you most tempted to be reckless? And how? How have you been reckless recently? Maybe with this virus? Maybe hoarding? Too much? Maybe your mindset? Um, Maybe some arrogant opinions that you posted four weeks ago and now regret? Maybe with authority? Let the Holy Spirit talk to you right now. Where are you tempted to be reckless? As we were driving, right at that snowbank, we hit it. We got across it, and, and all of a sudden, there is no trough for our tires. We're going about 25 miles an hour. I'm in low gear, four-wheel drive, begging God to get me out of my stupidity, okay? My wife to still maybe have some sort of respect for me, <laughs> and just praying, God, I need your grace. I've been, I, I'm, rec- I'm reckless, We traveled about a hundred more feet after that prayer. And there's a merging ramp on the side, and I see lights, and we hadn't seen light in a while. You know what it is? A gigantic plow. One of those huge plows. And it's coming up the ramp. And I said, I said to my wife, I said, we're going to duck in behind this plow and follow it. And I could almost make out his face seeing me coming down the road, and his face was um, extreme disappointment. But then grace. For I watched him go, get behind me. That father, that husband in that truck with his eyes wide open, followed that plow for the next 45 minutes to an hour to the exit at Belfont, got off, pulled into the driveway of my wife's parents' house, walked up, ate some real humble pie once I got in the door and heard how stupid I was, which I already knew, ate a nice warm meal that night, laid down in that bed and said, thank you, God, for your grace despite my recklessness. You know, when people think about the hand of God, it's often scary like the writing on the wall. But you know what? It's not scary for his kids. The hand of God is the most comforting thing we could ever see. How do you see the hand of God? Are you terrified of it like Belshazzar? Are you comforted by the hand of God? I really believe your context is based on whether you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. For if you know Jesus as your Savior, you aren't afraid of the hand of God. You are enthused, comforted, grounded, secured by the hand of God. Folks, I know there's many people listening out there from many different arenas of life. And just in our last five minutes here, I want to give you a tenfold portrait of the hand of God that would draw you towards it, comfort you amidst this, and maybe gain some new perspective if the enemy has been lying to you about the hand of God. I believe it's grace amid recklessness. So, so here's what I've called it, the tenfold portrait of the hand of our God. And I'm going to go relatively quick. Because I believe each verse builds on itself. Write it down if you want, but lock in here. Let's get from Scripture a portrait of the hand of our God. 
For the hand of our God is good on all those who seek him. So let's seek him. Here we go. Um, here's what the hand of God does. Are, are you feeling um, angry out there or um, you're, you're frustrated or discouraged? Here, here it is. The hand of God lifts up even among defeat. Humble yourself. Just humble yourself. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, in proper time, he may exalt you. The hand of God lifts up his children even when they feel defeated. Here's the second one. It protects amid trouble. Are, are you feeling attacked? I know there's um, some administrators that have had to make decisions, and they've been attacked for it. Are you feeling attacked? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me, Psalm 138.7. The hand of God protects amid trouble. He's going to fight for you, even if you feel attacked. That's what we have, child of God. Third, um, it grips amid instability. Listen to John 10.29. My Father who has given them to me, Jesus is talking, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Are you feeling scared this might be the end times? Maybe you're a non-church goer and you've kind of gotten out of the habit of going to church and you've been kind of tuning in, but you're scared. Is this the end times? Is this? And, and I got saved. I think I got saved. Maybe I'll get saved again or, or should I call in the name of the Lord? Listen, if you have called on Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior and have entrusted him, ask for forgiveness for your sin and call on the name of the Lord and say, be my Lord. Jesus says, the Heavenly Father grips you. You don't have to be unstable. You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. That's what the hand of God does for his kids. Maybe you're feeling a little insecure. You know what the hand of God does? It reassures amid insecurity. I know there's some business owners out there who don't know if their business will ever bounce back. Even these may forget. Isaiah speaks of God talking about his children. Yet I'll not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. Isn't that cool? That God knew the walls of his children. He knows the walls of your business too. Are, are you willing to allow him to reassure you amid this insecurity you might be feeling that he knew this was coming, he knew this was coming for your business, and even if your business doesn't bounce back, maybe he has a better one for you. Kids out there, are you feeling scared during this time? Look what the hand of God can do. It can hold on to you amid fear. For I... The Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you, Isaiah 41, 13. There's nothing more powerful for a parent to grab a hold of a little kid when they're feeling scared. Our Heavenly Father says, hey kids, I got you. I got you. You know what else the hand of God does? It comforts amid dismay. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. I'll, I'll uphold you. You're fallen. You're fallen. You feel dismay. You feel discouraged. I'll hold you up with my righteous right hand. Wow. College student, you're feeling a little dismay. You lost your spring. You lost your friends. You're having the time of your life, and all of a sudden now you're in your bedroom playing video games feel a little dismay? God says, hey, I got you. I'm going to strengthen you through this. I'm going to use this in your life. You know what? It saves amid ruin. Look at this. The hand of God saves amid ruin. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Isaiah 59.1. I know there's some government officials, God-fearing government officials who are feeling a little doomsday with this. They don't know when this is going to end, if this could go even into our summer. Um, God can turn this around. And in his timing, he will. We need to lean into him and not let the enemy preach doomsday into our life. Maybe you're just feeling anxious. I know there's a lot of moms out there that are just feeling a little uneasy and anxious. You know what the Lord's hand does? It stabilizes amid upheaval, amid un uneasiness. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, Psalm 16, 8. Hear that. Set the Lord before you. How do you set the Lord before you? Here's what you need to be reading more than the articles on your phone. Set the Lord before you. He can stabilize amid upheaval. He leads amid unrest. 
I know there's some front lines, some nurses, some doctors out there. They're right in the front line. And there's some unrest to that. There's just some uneasiness. Am I putting my family at risk going to work? But some of us need to walk into this with faith. Even amidst some risk. Not recklessness, but faith. But even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I want you to hear this, nurse. Even there, where, even in that hospital room, even there, the hand of God is with you. Pastor out there handing out food, a little nervous, maybe you're giving out germs or getting germs, even there, even there. Frontline person, even there. And then finally, it delivers amid doubt. That's what the hand of God does. It delivers amid doubt. Jesus said to Thomas, the doubter, reach here with your finger, see my hands, and reach here with your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. You can bank on this. Whatever doubt you have of how you'll come through this, if you're a child of God, you know he will deliver for us. Because he rose victorious from the grave. And you've got to join us next week as we talk about the hand that had nails driven through it and conquered death. I pray you have the hand of God in your life and it's not a hand you fear, but it's a hand you hold on to in times like this because you've made a decision to trust Christ as your personal Savior. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, wherever they're at in their house today, whatever age, whatever they're going through, whatever their line of work, whatever it is, God, would you just show up for them today? Maybe even have used this sermon. One of the things I said, one of the things that you used me to say, just get the messenger out of the way, Lord, and you speak to your people and say, hey, hey, trust me in this. I'm the same God you had two months ago. I'm the same God that Daniel prayed to. Circumstances may have changed, but not me. And I pray if there's anyone out there that fears the hand of God, they would remember this portrait and call upon the hand of God to grab them during this time and to never let them go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Join us next week, Easter Sunday. It's going to be a day of celebration, regardless if it's in our homes. Have a great day.